Wendy and I have been married for 15 years, and uh, I can say with full confidence and not a word of a lie that I love her, and uh, that I for sure am a better man for having her in my life. I can't imagine life without her. (laughs) You may go now. That's the end of the service. But here's, here's something that I've learned about marriage, and I've learned this as a pastor, I've learned it as a husband, and I've learned it as simply an observer of life, uh, that, you, that you cannot... Oh, are we able to go back in, please? That... Oh, this is fun. Anyway, that you can have commitment without love, but you cannot have love without commitment. Okay, let me say this again. You, you can have commitment without love, but you cannot have love without, without commitment. Now, there are many marriages um, who are committed, but they lack love. That the marriage vows have been kept, but the fire of love has been allowed to cool until it is either extinguished or nearly, nearly, uh, nearly extinguished. There is no affection and, and there is a sort of a commitment, but there is no, there's no cherishing. Um, and so I say this, that you can have commitment without, without love, but you cannot have love without commitment. And so we live in this, in this age of the open marriage. We have phrases like polyamorous relationships. We are told that we can love each other without being exclusively um, focused on each other. But what we read in the Bible is that that's not true. Uh, Because love that is not lived out is not love. If, If we can just have that slide up. Love that is not lived out is not love. And if you're not married, the same as is, is, um, with friendship, right? You know, if you can imagine going through a tough time and you reached out to your friend, someone who you really rely on, someone you trust in, and you send them a text saying, I think I'm feeling or thinking some really dark thoughts. Would you, would you mind meeting up with me just to help me process through this? After a few minutes, you receive a text back that says, I love you, but I was planning to make apple pie tonight. Some other time, maybe. Love that's not lived out is not love. And, this, and in this series, our goal is to learn what love looks like so that when we see love, we are able to say, now that over there, that looks like love. And love, particularly in English, is such a vague term. You know, I can say, I love HP Source, and I love my kids. Now, what I can't say is that my kids love HP Source, because... They don't, okay? But, but, but we use that word love both for HP source and in the same breath we use the same word for our kids. And so when we, when we talk about this love that God has for us and when we talk about this love that we have for God, we have to drill down and we have to, have to define it a little bit more. And so 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, if we just go back a slide in, Uh, which is the anchor verse of this whole letter, helps us get a grip on what love looks like. And if you're an underliner, I encourage you to underline 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, which says this, 
This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, later on in the series, we will be looking at this verse more in depth. Uh, And so I don't want to spend too long here here today. But what I want you to notice from this verse is, first of all, uh, A, that love originates from God and it doesn't originate from us. So God is the one who, who... who says what love is, we aren't. And secondly, that, that this love of God in this verse, 1 John 4 verse 10, that this love is a love that is lived out, right? It's love in action. It's not, it's not a passive love. It's not a sit back and see what happens love. It's an, it's an active love. And so God didn't just send us warm feelings and prayers and thoughts our way. That's not what happened, you know, um, he didn't just send us warm thoughts and then leave us. He loved us by putting on his dirty coveralls and getting down in the dirt with us. That God loved us by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice, which is the means to make things right between us and him. And this, uh, and this verse links us straight through to, to our passage Today, First John chapter two, starting at verse one. So, if you have a Bible, or you know, if there's a Bible within reach, I'd encourage you to open it and to read it, because then you can know that these are the words of of God Himself and not me. So, First John chapter two, verse one says this: "My dear children, I write this to you so that you 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 do not sin." And I I I dealt with that verse a couple of weeks ago. But then the first John chapter two start, um, moves on and continues and says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Now, what the word advocate means here is like a defense lawyer. That's what it means. Someone who comes alongside, someone who's in trouble, someone who finds themselves on the wrong side of the law and they give them aid. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, tells us that Satan is the prosecuting lawyer. And it says, and what, what Revelation 12, verse 10 tells us, is that he's, he's accusing us before God day and night. Satan is there accusing us. So if, if you can imagine what that looks like, night and day, Satan's up there, and all of the time... Times that you've lied and you've cheated and you've lusted and you've hated and you've murdered. Well, Satan is relentless. He never stops making a case against you. He's, he's listing, he's, he's making a list and he probably checks it twice, you know. And there's no one who's nice. Everyone's naughty, right? Um, Satan has kept your browsing history Satan has tapped all of the phone calls that you've ever made and he comes before God, the righteous judge, and he says this, look at him. Look at him, God. He's there in church just singing how it's, it's better to have one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, but I know where he was last night and for sure it was nowhere near your courts, God. And look at her over there. She just sang, for here my heart is satisfied in your presence. But I see the websites that she 
goes to regularly when she thinks that no one is watching. And God, I don't really think that you, that, that, that you satisfy her. I don't think that that's true. And so Satan accuses us day and night. We aren't aware of it, but it's happening. And this list is never-ending. If we could hear what Satan is accusing us of, we would want to sink into a hole and never, never come out. And the worst thing of all, the worst thing of it all, is that everything that Satan says would be true. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, tells us that, that, that our hearts condemn us. And, 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 and what this means is that when Satan in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, is making all these accusations, our hearts, if we're honest, are saying, you're right. You're right. 1 John chapter 3, if our hearts condemn us, that's what it says. So have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced your, your heart condemning you? Have you ever heard those whisperings telling you how sinful and terrible and worthless you are? Well, if you have, then that's the sound of you agreeing with Satan, who's known as the accuser. But then 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 carries on, says, if our hearts condemn us, then we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Friends, if, if, if we're in Jesus, if we've, re- if we've repented and placed our faith in him, like I talked about last week, if we've placed our, our eternal soul in Jesus' hands, if we've chosen to follow him, then as 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, that Jesus speaks out on our behalf as our defense attorney. He's our advocate, and he's making his case to the one who is greater than our heart, the one who knows everything. And so in the face of Satan's accusations, and in the face of our hearts uh, condemning us, Jesus comes alongside us. He helps us. He speaks out. He says, I object. And after God pauses and turns his attention to Jesus, because that's what happens in the lawyer shows, you know, someone shouts, shouts object, and then they have to explain why they're objecting. And uh, Satan, uh, and what Jesus says after saying, saying I object, he says three words, and he says, they are mine. And when Satan hears those three words, when, when, when Satan hears Jesus' uh, words that they are mine, he knows that he doesn't have a leg for him to stand on, because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen? And that brings us back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, which is our theme verse of this series, which says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, and so this truth, this, 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 this one verse that has so much amazing truth all jam-packed into it, it should make us rejoice. It should make us spin cartwheels. It should make us jump up and down. It should make us shout out loud because this is what God's love for us looks like. But what does our love for him look like? What does our love for God look like? 
verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2. Now we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And John here is being a really effective speaker, a really effective writer. He's saying the same thing in three different ways. In short, he's saying that love is responsive obedience. He's saying that you cannot say that you love God and then go and live any way that you wish. In the same way that I cannot say that I love my wife and then sleep around on her. It's just not a possibility. Love that is not lived out is not love. And so, you know, I can be maybe committed to Wendy without love, but I cannot love her without a commitment. And so, and so in a sense, I can look like I'm faithful to God without love. You know, I'm here on a Sunday, I pray regularly, I read the Bible, you know, la di la di la etc., etc. So I can look like I'm being faithful to God without love. And there are lots of so-called Christians like that who say, to faith, who say that they're faithful to God, but then you look at them and you ask, where is the passion? Where is the love? Where is the changed life? You cannot say that you love God without being faithful to him, without obedience. You cannot say that you love God and then cheat on him. You cannot say that you love God and then mess around on him with idols and with other gods that aren't gods. You know, the Bible calls God, it's, you know, we use lots of terms, right? When we worship God, we say he's magnificent, that he's awesome, that he's holy, etc., etc. What we don't often say is that God, you, you are a jealous God, right? There's not many worship songs with that line there. But God is a jealous God, and the Bible says that he's a jealous God. And if you struggle with that, what would you rather? Would you rather a God who, is, who really doesn't care? Or would you rather a God who is jealous for, for you and for your affections? You know, you know, if I was messing around on Wendy and, she, and, and, and Wendy didn't care, that would worry me. You know, I would want her to be mad, you know. And so just like your spouse requires faithfulness as an evidence of your love, and just like your friends re- require you being there for them as an evidence of your friendship, so God requires faithfulness as an evidence of your love for him, being, being obedient. So what about you? Is your heart on fire for Jesus, or are you just roommates? Do you seek to please him in in all that you do, or are you lazy in your affections for him? Is he your first love? Is he the lover of your soul? Is, Is he on your mind? Are you constantly looking for ways to make him happy and to please him? Do you long to see him one day and for him to have a smile on his face as he welcomes you home? Or have you let that fire burn low? 
Have you let other loves into your house? Are you in some sort of a polyamorous relationship with God and with your work, maybe, or with God and with success, or with God and your social media presence, or with God and your calendar that is so full? My accountability partner this week sat with me over breakfast and he asked me this. He said, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? And so I I look at my life and I ask myself this. Is Jesus enough? Am I able to look Jesus in the eye and say to him, all I want is you. All I need is you. If, if, if my health and my family and my job and my security and my reputation was removed, would Jesus be enough? Is Jesus your life's operating system? Or is he an app that you have, you have downloaded into your life, ready to be deleted if you find that you're running out of room? Which is he? If you are sleeping around, then you do not love your spouse, at least not as you thought. And if you're not living a life of obedience to what God has revealed to you, then you do not love God, at least not as you thought. And this response of obedience is lived out in radical community. Now, verse 9 through 11 show us a picture of what radical community looks like, but these three verses can can be summed up in, in, in verse 11, which says this, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So what does hating your brother and sister look like? We can think of the obvious. We can think of things like rumor-mongering. We can think of things like not believing the best of them. We can think of being envious of them, maybe judging them. These are the ways that we can hate our brothers and sisters. But I'd like to suggest another way that we can hate our brothers and sisters in a sense. And that is this by making them feel alone, unloved, or like there's no one there for them. And how do we do this? How can we hate, hate our brothers and sisters in this way without even meaning to? Well, I would say this. It's by opting out of community. That when we, when we opt out of, out of fellowship with each other, we are, in a sense saying to them, you aren't even on my radar. You, you don't need me and I don't need you. And it's, and it's not a huge leap from, from that, from that to, to, to your friend or your brother and sister feeling, well, I'm not loved. And what's another word for I'm not loved? Well, I'm hated. And so when we make our church fellowship literally the last thing on our list of what's important, 
in a sense, we are hating our brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this. Let us, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but in encouraging one another. So here it's, it's clear. You either, you're either encouraging someone or you've quit meeting together. You know, there is no, well, well, we don't meet regularly, but I still want to, want to encourage you. It's either one or the other. So are you a spurrer? Are you an encourager? Or are you in the habit of no longer meeting together? And if you're not sure which you are, look at the calendar. Look at your calendar. Because opting out of, of community is a lonely place to be. That's why we, you know, that's why we as a church have our grow groups. This is why they, they exist. Because going it alone is hard. Choosing to live with undealt with conflicts and problems is a lonely place to be. Satan loves to separate us from the flock. And then, he, and then once we're separated from the, the flock, he convinces us that the flock is actually better off without us. And the you know, that's a lie. Or he will separate us from the flock, and then he will say to us, he'll whisper to us, well, the flock no longer really, uh, didn't really exist in the first place. You're on your own. And that's a lie. First John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And friends, that is the kind of fellowship that I want our church to have. Radical community, walking in the light, being honest with each other, sharing our lives together, being cleansed by Jesus as we are honest with each other, not giving up, meeting together. And it's because of this, this longing that I have for, for, for our church, it's because of this that I have to that I share with you the following words. I have not been walking in the light. I've been keeping myself to myself. Now, this is a bit of an occupational hazard for a pastor, talking the talk and not walking the walk. It's easy to do. And unfortunately, I've been walking in the dark, walking alone, keeping my thoughts and my feelings to myself. And, I, and I've listened to the voice of the adversary who has told me that no one else is experiencing what I'm experiencing. You know, that I'm the only one. He's been accusing me day and night in front of God's throne. And so here's my confession. I've been feeling a malaise. I've been feeling flat. I've been feeling like my sail is not full. I've been feeling low, like, like my joy has been stolen from me. And I struggle to say this because God is doing some amazing things. He's, he, he's been drawing people to himself. He's been raising up leaders in our church. We've, you know, we've gone and hired a youth pastor. There is so much for us to, us to be grateful for. But regardless, I've been struggling. Here's a couple of entries from my journal. I'm one of those men that's happy with himself that writes a journal. You know, I'm that kind of guy. I write down my, my uh, thoughts, you know. So, and uh, here's a couple of uh, entries from the past f few days. Uh, less, 
less than a week. And the first one says this, I feel low, low today. I feel a heaviness. And I know why. I think, I think it's tiredness and perhaps spiritual attack. And I know the truth in my mind, even if my heart feels heavy. Here's another one. I'm fighting the, the, the spirit of discouragement, but Jesus is bigger and better and more worthy of my attention and my, and, and my energy. End quote. I'm fighting the spirit of discouragement, but Jesus is bigger and better and more worthy of my attention and my energy. Wednesday night, I woke up in the middle of the night. You know, it was a restless night. I, 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 you know, I ended up on the couch kind of thing. Not, I wasn't kicked out onto the couch, but that's where I ended up. Uh, you know, it's just one of those nights where, you, where your head is just, just wild. And, uh, and so I was on the couch, and I woke up in the middle of the night with, with such a sense of r- real failure. You know, and I don't know where, where it was from, but I do remember in my half-awake, half-asleep state, thinking that I should call Ralph, our vice chair, and ask him if I'm the right person to lead our church. It felt like I'd been really punched hard in the belly. You know, it, was, it really hurt, you know. And so these are some of the things that I've been feeling and thinking over the past few weeks. And so I've sucked it up and I've soldiered on because that's what pastors do and that's what men do, right? And, and in the midst of that, God has been faithful and loving. He's been really good. And so I have been keeping myself encouraged. I've been, I've been fighting, fighting this battle, not fighting in a losing sense, but really fighting it, reminding myself of, of who the Lord is. And uh, one of the quotes from my, from my journal is this, that my heart is not the final arbiter of truth or reality. My heart is not the final arbiter of truth or reality. But why I've been doing it alone is that I'm afraid of bringing other people down, of being a bit of a discourager. You know, and so I think of ex-cornerstoners who've left our flock and they're going elsewhere and my heart hurts. You know, and I think of conflicts which have taken place in the day-to-day reality of pastoring and my heart hurts. And I think of things which I've said that I shouldn't have said and my heart hurts. And, you know, and I think of, uh, of friends of mine who are going through the mill and my heart hurts and I look at our church finances and I wish that we had everything that we needed you know to fulfill what God is placing on on our heart as a church and my heart hurts listen I don't want to overshare I hate pastors who overshare it's like one of those super awkward moments where no one really knows what to say but I do want you to hear, but why, and why I share all this, is that walking in the light is something that we all have to be doing. You know, that when we pray together, uh, when we, uh, and when we war against our discouragement, that's something that we all have to be doing. And so I know that 
Sometimes hating our brother or sister, as verse 10 says, it doesn't always mean physically hurting them. It doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean spreading vicious rumors necessarily. Sometimes it's just allowing them to feel like they're alone. And when we feel alone, what happens is that we tend to leave others alone. And these are people who could really benefit from our friendship. Sarah Davis shared in June these words, and I love them. Sarah said, it was the community around me that allowed me to see God when I could no longer see him myself. Hands up if you've ever had those moments where you think, I can't see God. It's like there's a big cloud, you know, in front and I can't see past it. Hands up if you've ever, ever felt like that. I have for sure. And Sarah says, and she's absolutely spot on right with this, is that it's our community around us. When we can't see him, we need others around him to say, look, there he is. There he is. And our hearts are lifted and we get encouraged. This is what walking in the light looks like. And so I say to you that God is enough. Jesus is enough. Whatever your doubt or your worry or your fear, Jesus is enough. And so how do I keep myself encouraged? By reminding myself that Jesus is enough. By surrounding myself intentionally with a wife or with friends or with parents or a younger brother in Wales who can speak truth into my life when I cannot speak it myself. You know... What I need is someone who can bring Psalm 6 verse 2 into reality in my life. Oh, would you go back a couple? And what Psalm 6 verse 2 says says is this. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And what Psalm 6 verse 2 tells us is that none of us can find the rock by ourselves. We need each other. We need someone to lead us there. And we need to be better at this as a church. And I have to be better at this as your pastor. And I know, or I'm quite sure, that you have to be better at this as well. So in the midst of trouble and trial, in 1 John 2, verse 7, or first on two, 2 verse 8, John says this, that the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And where is this, this light shining? Well, if you look at verse 7 and verse 8, it's clear that this light is shining in Jesus and this light is shining in us, in each other. And this love is reflected light And so if you want to see this light, then you need to do something radical. You need to press into community. You won't find it otherwise. You need to join a grow group. You you need to call someone up and say, may we have a a coffee. This is truth that trumps feeling. Now, verse 7 and 8 of of 1 John 2 tells us that, that this, that, that, we have a command that is as old as the sun and as fresh as this morning sunrise. It's old and it's new. Verse 7 says, I'm not writing to you a, a new command, but I'm writing to you, an, to you an old one. And yet John then goes on to say in verse 8, yet I am writing to you a new command. It's ancient and it's new. But what is the command? Verse 6 
has the answer. Whoever claims to live in God must live as Jesus did. So, so for us to see this, this sunrise rising up in our lives, we need to be living as Jesus lived. Simple, easy. We just need to be the same as the Son of God who's lived for from eternity. You know, that's all that we have to do. But how did he live? He lived in total and utter and unrelenting reliance on, you know, on the Father. Here's a couple of verses I want to shoot at you quickly. John, John 5 verse 19. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father is doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John chapter 5 verse 30 says, By myself I can do nothing. I seek to please not myself, but him who sent me. John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has, has told me to say. Jesus relied on the Father, absolutely. And so love is reliance on God. So for us to live as Jesus did, to walk as Jesus walked, we need to be plugged into the Father. We need to hear his heartbeat. We need to be sensitive enough to hear his little quiet cues. We need to slow down and care enough to listen to him. You know, you can be doing all of the good in the world, friends, but if you're doing it without total reliance on God, then you will be like a bull in a china shop doing more harm than actual good. It's only as you listen and you learn to listen to God's voice that you will even know what to be obedient about. Because love is responsive obedience. Love is radical community. Love is reflected light. And love is reliance on God. This week I wrote two sermons. On Wednesday I wrote one sermon. It was a very different sermon than what you're hearing this morning, though it was based on the same verses. But it wasn't really coming together. It's so frustrating when that happens. And so I left, I left Wednesday feeling frustrated and feeling tired. Because on Wednesday, I'd had two very significant conversations, one with Stacy and one with my younger brother, Josh. And both of these conversations made me stop and reassess how I view meaning, purpose, success, you know, all of these things. And then on Wednesday evening, um, I actually risked a little bit and shared a little about, about how I was feeling low with a couple of my friends. And then on Wednesday night, I was woken up with that crushing feeling of having failed. And then on Thursday morning, my friend Nathan asked me, Dan, is Jesus enough? And then on Thursday afternoon, I had another conversation which made me realize that I'm not alone. That there, are, that, there are, that there are other people around us who feel alone and isolated because Satan has tricked us into keeping our struggles to ourselves. Rather than isolating us, our struggle should unite us. We should be bearing each other's burdens. We should be praying for each other. And any time we don't, we're not living out love. You might even say that we're acting like we hate each other. 
And so I wrote another sermon on Thursday. It was rough around the edges. It was not nice and tidy. It's a bit messy. It's a bit oversharey. And this is the sermon that you've just heard. Love that is not lived out is not love at all. And this love in 1 John chapter 2 is a responsive, it's a responsive obedience that's lived out in radical community as we rely on God and we reflect his light to each other. But always remember that we love because God first loved us. Amen. Let me leave you with this as the worship team comes up. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough?